according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here this morning for the purpose of growth. Turn the Bible as we get started to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, continuing our look at the pre-incarnation work of Christ. This is our sixth lesson in the Life of Christ series. We have spent the bulk of our time introducing the material, giving some background work. We did uh, actually get into the gospel text itself when we gave you Luke's introduction in Luke 1, 1 through 4. And then recently we have started to look at the second section, the pre-incarnation work of Christ from John 1 verses 1 through 18. And these are the headings from the Harmony of the Gospels handout that we gave you some time ago. And that we need to, if you don't have one of those, we'll need to get one to you and make sure that we have copies of those available. We uh, handed them out at the beginning of this class uh, a few weeks back. They're also printed in your Through the Bible handbooks, uh, the notebooks that we did at the end of 2002. So we look at the pre-incarnation work of Christ and we read from John chapter 1, we realize that these are themes that are eternal in their scope, that these are studies that are taking us back to eternity past. And so a lot of times we're going to struggle or we're going to wrestle with it just simply because we're finite beings. We are finite creatures, finite in our thinking, finite in our understanding, and we need the infinite uh, assistance of God the Holy Spirit who reveals these things to us. And, and uh, so we'll take time now for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit to make sure that we are equipped to handle infinite truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to assemble together this morning and receive instruction. And I pray, Father, as we continue in this Life of Christ series, that we would have our eyes open to the truth of your word, the purpose for Jesus Christ here on this earth, the purpose for his life, the purpose for his teaching. Ultimately, Father, the purpose for his death and our own redemption. Uh, Father, I pray that we would... Have our eyes open to understand the, the bigger picture. Have our eyes open to understand the ultimate purpose of, of your plan from Alpha to Omega is the glorification of your Son. And, uh, Father, I pray that through, uh, through these studies we would have a clearer picture of what that glory is all about. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. As we examine the pre-incarnation work of Christ, we've given you so far... Uh, Two points of study, am I correct? Did we leave off with point two and then an A and a B under that? Okay. So we're almost concluded here. The Gospel of John begins with an in the beginning, which precedes the Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. And uh, we spotlighted the issues here, including the uh, study of Halagos as a title for the Word or as a title for God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ including the uh, nature of the imperfect tense when you examine the word for was and the uh, impact of having continuous action in past time, reflecting the eternal nature of God the Son. 
Um, we also looked at the uh, primary agent of creation, and we spent a lot of time on this, not only from here. It's pretty clear in verse 3 that if it came to be, he did it. Of all the things that came into being, Christ is the active cause for it coming into being. Of all the things that have come into being. And that's very important. The only things that are then accepted are the things which are in fact eternal. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The things that did not come into being. As is described in verse 3. Likewise, uh, verse 10 of this same passage here. Likewise, Colossians 1.16. And then the passage in Proverbs 8 that we spent quite a bit of time on last week. And I hope some of those passages are, if they don't totally make sense at this point of time, at least you know where to find them, and they are passages that you can chew upon and dwell upon uh, for some time yet to come. We saw that uh, the life that the Son provides, the light of life to the realm of humanity, and the linking of life and light, and the real issue there being eternal life, God's kind of life, the, the true life, as uh, being provided to the realm of humanity. And then finally, the role and the conflict that occurs between light and darkness. They are in conflict, and yet we know that it is the light that is omnipotent, it is the light which will reign eternally, that darkness itself is, uh, is passing away. Under point two, we looked to verses 6 through 13 here of this passage, and we realized that the Apostle John summarizes the entire gospel. The whole gospel message is summarized here as the witness to the light followed by the light. The witness to the light followed by the light. John the Baptist was the witness to the light. And he ministered and he proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. He was the herald. And then he was followed by the light. And that is in fact what the gospel record is all about. All of the prophets that from Adam to John the Baptist kept saying, the Christ is coming, the Christ is coming, the Christ is coming. And they were given miracles to perform, which were evidence of their divine credentials, which were testimony to their mission as having been sent from God the Father. The miracles that they performed uh, was the evidence that God had indeed sent them. Uh, but John the Baptist did no miracles. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before, or, or if I've mentioned that clearly enough before. Uh, but we will be looking at that through the course of this series, that he had a message, but no miracles. Because unlike the prophets that preceded him in the centuries and the millennia before Christ, uh, the Baptist had the privilege of not only saying, the Christ is coming, but he had the privilege of saying, there he is, when he actually walked onto the scene at the Jordan River. So um, we have... Uh, Quite a story here with the Baptist. He is called the greatest of those born among women. We will examine that, I think, later today uh, or next week as we get into this, uh, as we get into the text of Luke 1 and his actual birth. Then uh, we will see the greatest Old Testament believer, the greatest human being before Christ, who was pleased to introduce the greatest human being in the history of the world, that is, Jesus Christ. He is whoops, a faithful witness to the light is designed to produce faith in the light. A faithful witness to the light is designed to produce faith in the light. Your role as an evangelist is simply to bear witness of Christ. You're not trying to sell anything. We want to get the whole idea of salesmanship out of our evangelism. We don't have a product to sell. In fact, we're giving it away for free. It's a grace gift. And we're not trying to sell ourselves. It's not our credibility that the, uh, that the gospel message rests upon. 
Our role is to simply spotlight the light, the truth of God's word, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what a faithful witness will do. As it says in verse 7, He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to testify about the light. You can think about it if you like about the sun and the moon. The moon has no light. The moon generates no light whatsoever. It doesn't produce any light at all. It simply reflects the light that is generated by the sun. It bounces off the moon and we see it at night. And we're looking up at the sky. You know, it's always looking up at the sky as she sees the moon. And it looks like the moon is, is, is light. It looks like it's producing light. But we know it's not. We know all that the moon does is reflect the light that's bounced off. That, that it's reflecting the light that's produced by the sun. And if we can think in those terms, we want to understand our role as evangelists, as witnesses, that we are simply reflecting the light of Jesus Christ. The analogy doesn't totally bear fruit, however, because God is in himself actually bearing light through us. (laughs) We are children of light. We do produce light, that is, as his work comes in and through us. But hopefully the, uh, the imagery will still serve you well to understand this. Secondly, Jesus Christ is the true light, which provides for the universal offer of salvation. He is the true light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man, all mankind, everybody. It's a universal offer of salvation. We don't fall for the lie that says, well, you know, the Bible and Christianity is good for us, but Buddhism's good for the Buddhists, and Islam's good for the Muslims, and, and Hinduism's good for the, for the Hindus, you know. Uh, we don't buy into that. The gospel is effective for all humanity. And false religions are destructive to all humanity. And we have to be very clear on that. The uh, man fell into universal sin through the fall of Adam. Everybody has a sin problem, wherever they're from, whatever uh, continent they live on, whatever country they, they live in. They all have a sin problem as a descendant of Adam. They need a redeemer and Christ died for their sins. He is the true light which provides for the universal offer of salvation. All these false religions that are out there are a part of Satan's deceptive scheme to blind the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And that includes every false religion that's ever existed upon the face of the earth. We get into verses 14 through 18. We get into one of the deepest areas of all the scripture particularly when you examine it from the standpoint of paterology and Christology, and you see how the Father relates to the Son, and how the Son relates to the Father. Point three, John summarized the work assignment of the Word. John summarized the work assignment of the Word. Because, see, verses one through five is not the end of the story for the Word. In fact, it goes back to the beginning and shows what the Word was, what the Word was doing, But it didn't stop there because the word is reintroduced in verse 14 and something quite powerful indeed happened. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The work assignment of the word, the work assignment that only God the Son could do. The Holy Spirit couldn't do this. God the Father couldn't do this. It was designed for the word to accomplish and he accomplished it perfectly. And so in verses 14 through 18, we have this work assignment. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll go back here and we'll make some observations. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John, that's the Baptist, testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. That's the Father. The only begotten God, that's the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He has explained Him. Alright, so verses 14 through 18 form a very powerful portion of Scripture that um, ultimately needs to be broken down sentence by sentence, line by line, word by word, in a very detailed fashion in order to give the introduction to paterology and... Um, Areas of study that Ralph Braun has done and other pastors have done that uh, really delve into the into the depths of Scripture. We're just going to give you a summary of it here this morning. But this passage describes the work assignment, what the Word was doing. Now, in this passage, do you see the cross anywhere? Do you see death? Do you see... Atonement? Do you see blood? Do you see anything related to the substitutionary, meritorious, sacrificial work of atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross? It's not in here. The emphasis of this was the revelation of the Father as the work assignment of the Word in His life upon this earth. The issues are the provision of the the revelation of glory in verse fourteen. The uh, grace upon grace of verse 16, again, that's provision for us in the church. The contrast between law and grace in verse 17. And the relationship of the Father to the Son in verse 18. All of this is described as the activity for the Word when the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Nothing in this passage from 14 to 18 relates to Calvary. Relates to the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is why I have tried in our Through the Bible series, in our Gospel of John series that we did for six, no, for, yeah, six years prior to the Through the Bible series. And in six years of the Gospel of John, which only got us to chapter 8, plus the Through the Bible series, plus this morning, in describing the ministry of Jesus Christ, we have tried to highlight the difference between the purpose for His life and the purpose for His death. And if we can keep these issues separate, I think we'll go a long ways with it. Alright, join me before I do anything else here in, in these verses. You can hold your finger there if you like. Flip back to chapter 17. Flip back to chapter 17. I have about 180 hours of Bible study on cassette tape that Pastor John Eichmann has done on John chapter 17. <laughs> so, and he's only, he's not even anywhere near completing the chapter yet. So, uh, there's a lot of meat in John 17 with respect to this high priestly prayer and the role of Jesus Christ as he's anticipating the cross. The context for this, and Randy Blair taught on this, 
uh, one of the Wednesday nights when I was in the Philippines. I didn't have the heart to tell Randy that you know he taught this on a Wednesday night, this chapter, and I have still, to this point, not told him about the 180 hours of cassette tapes that I have on John chapter 17. <laughs> if, I, if I told him of those tapes' existence, then he would not want to teach the chapter. He'd want to listen to 180 hours of teaching first, but um, that takes a while. All right, John 17. He has had the dinner in the upper room. The betrayer has gone out to arrange the details of his arrest. He has departed from the upper room. He has taken three of his disciples into the garden with him for prayer. He has left them a short distance. He has gone off to pray. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you. That they may know you. Keep in mind, it's the knowledge of the Father that he's speaking of there. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now remember, back in John 1, we were focused on glory. We were focused on glory. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his what? His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have glory that's highlighted in John 1. Here again, he comes back to this issue of glory. Then in verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Verse 4. Verse 4 says that he has completed his work assignment. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. He says he's done the work. And this can't be talking about the cross because he hasn't gone to the cross yet at this point of time. And I've read commentaries where people try to explain that away and say, well, he hadn't gone to the cross yet, but he, he was going to, he was about to, and, and he was so sure that he was going to do it that, that he spoke of it as already being done. And that's just not... <laughs> doesn't hold water for a lot of different reasons. The um, issue here is looking at a completed work and looking ahead to work that's yet to be done. Work that he's asking the Father to do now as he goes to the cross. Work that the Father has to do with respect to the cross and the things that follow the cross in uh, protecting these disciples and the angelic conflict and the issues that happen here throughout, uh, throughout the rest of this chapter. Um the things which uh, he's praying on their behalf, and uh, the issues there as he intercedes on behalf of his disciples and really looks ahead to the yet unrevealed church age in the remainder of this chapter. But the the key concept there in verse 4 is that he says, I've done the work. I have done the work. And he's not talking about the cross. See, that's where it helps us if we understand he had a work assignment for his life to reveal the Father, to manifest the Father to His disciples. And He says, I've done that. And now they're equipped to go forth. As the Father sent me, so send I you. Now the disciples are equipped to be sent forth as, uh, as apostles, as the church age is, uh, is initiated and, and these things occur. There are uh, many other places throughout these uh, these. Uh, 
issues here throughout these chapters where the Father is revealed chapter by chapter by chapter. And hopefully, uh, if we ever do resume the Gospel of John series, we will be plunged right back into the depths of paterology as we look for these things. All right, so back down to John chapter 1. Because this is his work assignment being presented here. In John 17, 4, he can say, all right, I've done that. Work assignment complete. Now I'm ready for the cross. Because he'd accomplished the work of his life, he's now prepared to go forward and accomplish the work of his death. So again, verse 1, I mean verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Subpoint A, the word became flesh indicates the kenosis of Jesus Christ. I'll define that here in a moment. To come and identify with our weakness. Verse 14a. The Word became flesh. Indicates the kenosis of Jesus Christ. To come and identify with our weakness. The impact of became is once again, it's ginomai. That is to become something that it was not previously. Jesus Christ was not previously flesh. He was not previously flesh until the virgin conceived. He was not previously flesh. In the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord appeared, that was God the Son, Jesus Christ, in the theophany, in an angelic appearance, not a human appearance, not a fleshly appearance, I should say. Very important that we understand that. The burning bush was Jesus Christ. But not in the flesh. Not in the flesh. He did not enter into the flesh until he entered into the babe that was born of the virgin. The word became flesh. That that in itself becomes an important uh, study. Starting to hear that static a little bit more? So we'll switch to this. And uh, I'm not going to get back into it again this morning, but last week we spent some time talking about um, You Are My Son, Today I Have Begotten You. Uh, last week we were in Proverbs 8 and looked at the uh, wisdom which was begotten by the Father and the issues there. And I think I have done well enough recently at, at differentiating between the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, the true humanity, and the flesh, the body that was prepared. And maybe and we'll have to go back to those issues in some upcoming classes and, and focus on it once again. But the difference between the true humanity of Jesus Christ and then the physical body which was prepared for him in the womb of the virgin and uh, that's a, a difference that people tend not to think about. They just assume that his humanity began when he was born in the manger. And that that was the beginning of the humanity of Jesus Christ because that was, that was the beginning of his flesh. That was the beginning of his physical body. But hopefully we've understood that our humanity is, uh, is not dependent upon our physical bodies. You know, I can cut off your limbs and you're still human. Even without your body, you're still human. When you're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord, you're still human as far as your soul and and human spirit are concerned. Your body might be a male body, a female body, a white, black, 
red, green, whatever your race is, body, tall, short, fat, whatever. Your humanity has nothing to do with your body. Neither did the humanity of Jesus Christ have anything to do with the uh, physical body that was born of the virgin. Remember in Hebrews it says, A body thou hast prepared for me. Here the word became flesh. And uh, I think we do well when we start to differentiate between the hypostatic union of the humanity of Christ from the actual body born of the virgin in the manger. And uh, as I said, that's something we've done recently and something we will probably return to in the future. Um, But as we focus upon the flesh of it here, the word became flesh indicates the kenosis of Jesus Christ to come and identify with our weaknesses. All right, definition of kenosis, Philippians chapter 2. And you should all beat me there because I'm now a one-handed page flipper this morning. Philippians chapter 2, since I switched to the handheld microphone. Microphone in my left hand, coffee cup in my right hand. And I still beat you to Philippians chapter 2. Alright, Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, the schema, the form, this is the undiminished deity, did not have a limited, finite form, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. There's your kenosis, that is your emptying from kenao to empty or to set aside, to lay aside his privileges, I think is the best way to think about this concept. Now, he's immutable, which means he cannot stop being God. God the Son could not stop being God at any time. If God can quit being God, then you and I are in a whole lot of trouble. (laughs) Because if God can quit being God, then maybe tomorrow he'll stop being faithful. Maybe tomorrow he'll stop being righteous. Maybe tomorrow he'll start being cruel and he'll start, uh, he'll, he'll go back on his promise to save us. Now, we don't even want to think in those terms. God can never stop being God. However, he can choose to stop exercising those privileges or manifesting those attributes as Jesus Christ chose to do when he emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Alright, and this has reference to the physical form that he occupied while he walked this earth. The body that was prepared, and in fact, the uh, the body that was uh, prepared through the impregnation of the virgin. And so he stopped, for that period of time, exercising his deity. He stopped accessing his omniscience. He stopped um, exercising his omnipresence by confining his activity to the restraints of a physical body that had to walk from place to place to place. He had to walk from Bethlehem to Nazareth to Capernaum to Jerusalem to wherever he went. See, Even though as God, being omnipresent, why would he have to walk from Bethlehem to Jerusalem? 
He's in Jerusalem. <laughs> God the Son is in Jerusalem already. But by choosing not to exercise the attributes of deity and by choosing to limit himself to the physical body that he occupied, he was identifying with you and I in our weaknesses. He had to identify with us to become our substitute. He um, chose not to uh, exercise any of the... When you uh, lay out the omni-attributes of God, omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, um, all of the essence of God in terms of his deity and his power, he laid it all aside. And he lived the human experience from conception to birth to uh, childhood to adolescence to adulthood. Lived the entire human experience that you and I live. Tested in all things even as we are and yet without sin. Even as we are and yet without sin. Now I might be delaying a little bit about on this point, but um, it came up a couple of Sundays ago and our... This last Sunday came up and sparked a lot of questions uh, with respect to the humanity of Christ. And so I want to make sure that we teach it clearly and leave, uh, leave no doubts. Jesus Christ was tempted in all things, even as we are. That means the same way I'm tempted, he was tempted. The same way you're tempted, he was tempted. All right. In his humanity now can't tempt deity. How do you tempt deity? Deity itself cannot be tempted. Does not tempt anyone. Deity cannot be tempted, but in his humanity he was tempted. But emptied itself, it says in verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man that is observable, the physical manifestation the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is what the Word became flesh is all about. This is God limiting Himself, very humbly so, to the finite restrictions that you and I have. The finite restrictions of physical life, the finite restrictions of the physical body, finite restrictions of geography. I can only be in one place at one time. Have you noticed that? <laughs> you try to be in two or three different places at once and it doesn't work, does it? Limited knowledge. Limited knowledge. And in my mind, that's the extraordinary thing. This, the baby had to learn. The baby had to learn. And that boggles the mind. How to eat curds and whey and how to, uh, how to obey versus disobey and how to, how to, uh, how to speak Aramaic and how to, how to, uh, read and how to, you know, all the things we teach young children. The babe had to learn. We're going to see that in the prophecies made to John the Baptist and the prophecies made to, uh, to the Virgin Mary with respect to the coming child. The kenosis of Jesus Christ to come and identify with our weaknesses. I mentioned something briefly on Sunday about the temptations, about 
the, uh, of course, we know that Christ rejected every temptation. We know he had victory. He, he never committed a sin. He went to the cross spotless and blameless. But I mentioned something a couple Sundays ago about, uh, about a what if. You know, what if he had sinned? And he would not have been, you know, he would not have been qualified then to be our redeemer. Would not have been qualified to be on the cross. And uh, somebody here in the church just jumped all over me. Wanted to know, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? And uh, and I understand where this person was coming from. And some of you sitting here this morning may hold the same view. Absolutely horrified to uh, to think that such a thing could even be possible. So if that scares you, don't think about it. <laughs> All right. If you don't want to even, if if you shudder to even consider the possibility, well then don't consider the possibility. We, all we're dealing with is theory anyway, because the fact of the matter is that he went to the cross sinless and perfect, and he never sinned. We know that. So all we're left now is to to talk in theory about the potential. Could he have sinned? Could he have sinned? And a lot of believers are very opinionated and come down on the side of, no, there is no way he could not have sinned. And I think a lot of times when they do that, they're confusing deity and humanity. Deity cannot sin, of course not, because deity is immutable. But what about humanity? Did he or did he not have volition? See, he was sinless and perfect, but then again, so was Adam, sinless and perfect. But through human volition, Adam sinned. And in my mind, the greatest conclusion of all is that he was tempted in all things, even as we are. Now, if it was impossible for Jesus Christ and his humanity to sin, then he was not tempted even as I am. If it was impossible for him, for him to sin, then where's the temptation? If it was impossible for him to sin, then there's no temptation there. There's no danger there. There's no reason to sweat great drops of blood. There's no reason to come back and wake up your disciples and say, you guys better get to prayer and pray that you do not enter into temptation for the, mind, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Why would he say that? If he was immune to the danger of committing a personal sin. In any event, that's kind of a side trip, but I want to make sure we talk about it and at least show you where the issues are so that you can understand the Scriptures. Because the Scripture says He was tempted in all things, even as we are. And you and I certainly aren't tempted with an invulnerability to sin. We're tempted with a very possibility of sinning. And our volition decides if we're going to apply the Word of God and reject that temptation, or if we're going to reject the Word of God and pursue our own lusts and, and embrace the temptation. That's how we're tempted. And he was tempted in all things, even as we are, and yet without sin. So as the Word became flesh, we uh, tie in this emptying, the humility, the kenosis that we find in Philippians 2, uh, 7. And uh, we understand what we're looking at here back in John chapter 1. All right, so let's look at it again. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Tabernacled among us. Now, the word dwelt there is our word for tabernacled. It's a verb form of the noun tabernacle. All right? Or tent. Pitched a tent. 
We realize that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. We're just here temporarily. We don't want to get too used to the place because this isn't where we're established forever. Just temporary quarters. But if you think about the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was where Israel could approach the glory of God. When Jesus Christ tabernacled among us, that means that mankind approached the glory of God through the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of the Father was being revealed through the person of Christ, which we see here. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we saw His glory. Now, in the first tabernacle, only the high priest could actually see that glory. Only he could go within the veil. Only he could, on the Day of Atonement, could go within the veil and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and see that Shekinah glory uh, hovering above the mercy seat, below the wings of the, of the covering cherubim. Have you done a tabernacle study lately? How many people actually came face to face with that Shekinah glory in Old Testament Israel? They could see the glory descend and they could see the, the cloud and the pillar of flame, but the actual glory beneath the angel wings above that uh, mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, who got to see that? Only the high priest. And only on the Day of Atonement. But when Jesus Christ came, when the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, we all beheld His glory. All the apostles, all the disciples, all of the Pharisees, all of the people of that generation that came into contact with Jesus Christ beheld glory. We saw His glory. And what was His glory? Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now, His glory was not to celebrate Himself. His glory was not to storm into the world as a conqueror. His glory was not to appear as a tall, handsome, uh, heroic figure. In fact, nowhere in the Bible do we have His physical appearance described other than Isaiah 53, which says He has no stately form or majesty that we should be attracted to Him. The only physical description we have of Jesus Christ, we don't know if he was, if he had brown hair, blonde hair, red hair. We don't know any of that. Blue eyes, brown eyes. I don't have a clue. Was he tall? Was he short? Was he muscular? Was he fat? What was he? We have no clue. The Bible makes no such description. The only, the only physical description of the humanity of Jesus Christ in Isaiah 53 says he has no stately form or majesty that we should be attracted to him. He was not an attractive fellow, but he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Whatever his physical appearance was, that was reflected. His sorrow was reflected. His glory was not a personal glory to celebrate himself. His glory was to reflect his Father. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And chapter by chapter by chapter in the Gospel of John, you see the Father revealed you see the Father revealed all the way through. In um, When he drives out the money changers in the temple, he says, Stop making my Father's house a house of merchandise. He reveals the Father's house in chapter 2. He reveals the Father's gift in chapter 3. God the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. In chapter 4, He reveals the Father. And, uh, well, it's been a long time since I've gone through this. <laughs> 
the Father is in every single chapter of the Gospel of John. And um, if I can spot it real quickly here in chapter 4. The Father's worshipers in John chapter 4. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He reveals the Father's worshipers in chapter 4. He reveals the Father's teaching or the Father's work in chapter 5. That the Father is showing him all things that he himself is doing. John 5.20 The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. In chapter 6 you get the Father's provision. The bread of life that the Father provides out of heaven. That is Jesus Christ. John chapter 7 you have the Father's teaching where he says my teaching is not my own. But it is the teaching of the one who sent me. We have the Father in every single chapter. And then John chapter 8, he contrasts his father with the Pharisee's father. He says, you're of your father the devil. And you want to do the things that please your father. So all throughout this gospel, Christ is revealing the Father. And that's the glory that he manifests. That's the glory that the apostles beheld. Even if they didn't totally understand it at first. Remember, John is writing this gospel decades after the event. He is writing the Gospel of John decades after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. He's able to look back now and understand what that glory was all about. But even at the, at the cross, even immediately in the upper room, immediately before the cross, uh, he still had disciples like Thomas saying, show us the Father. And Christ just hangs his head and says, Thomas, have I been so long with you and you still say, show us the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. John, that's John 14, by the way. Secondly, the fullness of his ministry was not the condemnation of the law, but the freedom of grace and truth. The fullness of his ministry was not the condemnation of the law, but the freedom of grace and truth. It says, of his fullness we have all received. The law did nothing to give mankind the fullness of God. All that the law could ever do was highlight for mankind our own inadequacies, our own unworthiness. The fullness of his ministry was not the condemnation of the law. The law is condemning. But the freedom of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is described here as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it, in verse 16 it says, Of His fullness we have all received. Not only grace and truth, but grace upon grace, it says in verse 16. That's the verse that uh, Robert Rice chose to uh, name his ministry there in, in uh, Portland. Grace upon grace ministries. And that's what we have in the church. What a contrast. Verse 17 says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Not just given, but realized. That is, manifest. He lived it. He manifested it. He, he demonstrated it. And He gave it. Realized through Jesus Christ. The law was shadow. The law was looking ahead. The law was teaching, but didn't realize anything. 
reality comes through Christ. This is the work assignment of the Word during His earthly life. Revealing the Father. Teaching, demonstrating, realizing that grace and truth being provided for all humanity. Point C. The Lord taught and explained grace and truth through the revelation of God the Father. The Lord taught and explained grace and truth through the revelation of God the Father. That's verse 18. The Lord taught and explained grace and truth through the revelation of God the Father. This is how grace and truth are manifest. The clearest picture you and I will ever have on grace, we will have by studying paterology, by understanding God the Father. Looking at Christ, looking at Christology will give us some basics on grace. But developing out the Father will give us the fullness of grace. It says in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. Remember, He is the invisible God. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one has beheld God at any time. Every glimpse of deity that we find throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the glimpses that we find are, uh, if they are manifestations on this earth, the, the, the theophanies that occur on this earth are for the most part Jesus Christ. Whether you talk about the angel of the Lord or the burning bush or the other forms of God, the babe in the manger, the earthly ministry of Christ and His humanity, almost every theophany in Scripture is Jesus Christ. In very rare occasions, uh, the representation of the Holy Spirit uh, when He descended as a dove upon Christ was to, to illustrate that. But, the Holy Spirit appears almost nowhere else in Scripture, not in a visible form. And when is the Father ever beheld? When is the Father ever beheld? The uh, closest that comes is a dream that Daniel has. When he beheld the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man that appeared before him. But that was a dream. That wasn't literally seeing God the Father. Because no one has seen God the Father. Although I believe in the new heavens and the new earth, when we are transformed into glory, we will behold the Father. We will see Him face to face as Jesus Christ does. But for now, we're not equipped to handle it. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, the only begotten God, now some later manuscripts changed that from Theos to Huios, and they changed it to the only begotten Son. Uh, that makes it line up real well with John 3.16, the only begotten Son that's in that verse. But the earlier manuscripts all have the only begotten Theos, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. This is Jesus Christ. Uh, and when you talk about deity, and you talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, only one of those three is described as the only begotten. That's Jesus Christ, as God the Son. The Father is not begotten, the, the Holy Spirit is not begotten, it is only the Son that is set apart as being the unique celebrity of the universe that the Father has chosen for all the fullness to dwell in Him. The only begotten God, 
who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The word there for explained is where we get our concept of exegesis. It's a Greek word where we get exegesis. And I was going to put that up here for you. And I failed to, uh, failed to launch my Bible software this morning and we don't have a whole lot of time left here anyway. But to exegete, to explain, it's only found here in the New Testament. It means that we are going to draw it out. We are going to tear it apart. We are going to systematically outline everything. We're going to explain it thoroughly. And we're going to get the message across. That's what you do when you exegete. If you're going to exegete a passage, what are you going to do? You're going to go back to the original Hebrew or Greek. You're going to draw out the definition. You're going to compile a uh, comparative word study. You're going to break down the word usage in its syntax, in its context, in its historical development. You're going to break it down and relate it to the terms that are around it in both the near and the far context. And you're going to translate it into a modern language that will communicate effectively to the audience that you are preaching to. That's what you do when you exegete a passage. When you exegete a text. It's a thorough process. And that's what's being described here in verse 18 as a very thorough process. He's not just briefly going to, in a very cursory fashion, just introduce the Father and say, Oh, by the way, it's my Father. <laughs> you ever been introduced that way? <laughs> just kind of in passing? you know? Oh, by the way, this is... Fred, Jim, Jim, Fred, all right, that's done. <laughs> that's not much of an introduction, is it? It's not what Christ is doing. He's not just introducing the Father. He is exegeting the Father. He is systematically, thoroughly, exhaustively, in the minute detail, describing the Father whom he loves. You see here, he's in the bosom of the Father. He has, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. That face-to-face love relationship. Here's Jesus Christ in the bosom of the Father. Like the hymn we sing, near to the heart of God. Near to the heart of God. Revealing the Father to mankind. Remember, the whole concept of reconciliation is bringing fallen mankind back to a relationship with God the Father. A relationship that fallen mankind has been estranged from their father for 4,000 years. Ever since the fall. The work of reconciliation is bringing man back to a relationship with the Father. And the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth, his, the purpose for his life was to reveal that very Father, that relationship that would be restored when salvation could be accomplished. So he reveals the Father... And then he goes to the cross and does the work that will actually enable that reconciliation to occur. The Lord taught and explained grace and truth through the revelation of God the Father. And I hope that some of this is going to come out as we break it down for you. Turn with me over to John chapter 14. John 14. In the upper room, as he's speaking to his disciples, the night before he was arrested, or the night of his arrest, this is the night before he goes to the cross, 
All right. I'm a Friday crucifixion guy, so this would have been Thursday night. If you're a Wednesday crucifixion or a Thursday crucifixion or however you break down the Passion Week, this is the night before, the night of his arrest. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. All right? Christ has been in heaven now for 2,000 years preparing our place. And when he comes back for us at the rapture, he's taking us there. And the pre-tribulational rapturist has the best time with this verse. The post-tribulational rapturist has a hard time with this concept. Because they have Christ returning at second advent and not taking anybody to heaven, but staying there on earth and conquering and ruling and and uh, they have problems with the concept that Christ is in heaven today preparing our home, our mansions in the sky, and then he's going to come and rapture us and take us there. So uh, we have the simple approach of just reading the Bible and believing what it says. It's verse 4 says, And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, this is true of salvation. This is true of eternity. The only way to approach the Father is through Jesus Christ. This is true of salvation. This is true of eternity. This is true of prayer. If you're going to approach the Father in prayer, how are you going to do it? Through Jesus Christ. That's why every prayer is in Jesus' name. We can approach the throne of grace in prayer in Jesus' name, not in our own. If I try to go up there in my own name and my own merit, I have no standing there. I have no right to be there. No one comes to the Father but through me. Verse 7 says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? This is what he's been doing during his earthly life, is revealing the Father. Grace is a revelation of the Father. We are restored to the Father through reconciliation. Salvation is a relationship with the Father. We're not sons of Christ. We are brethren of Christ, sons of the Father, when we are born again, when we are born from above. All right, so this is the context of John 1, 1 through 18. We will come back a week from today, Lord willing, and we will move on to Luke chapter 1, and we will move on from the uh, introduction to the introduction part of our Harmony of the Gospel outline to the next section of our Harmony of the Gospel outline, which is the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. And we will go to Luke chapter 1 and we will see the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. So we will be in Luke 1 dealing with Zacharias, dealing with Elizabeth, dealing with the priestly service in the temple, the appearance of the angel Gabriel, and uh, all of the things that go into the call of John the Baptist and preparing the way for the coming Christ. Do we have any questions this morning before I close in prayer? Yes, ma'am. Is John 14, 6 the only exclusionary verse? Absolutely not. 
It's the easiest one to find in my mind, but there's many others. Um, there is a wonderful verse in Timothy that says, For there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man, Jesus Christ. And that's in, where is that? That's in either First or Second Timothy. Um, For there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man, Jesus Christ. And so you find that verse and you'll find another very exclusive verse that helps us to show that there is only one way to salvation. So uh, those are my two favorite, and I could probably come up with some more. That was the one we just looked at in John 14, 6. There's, um, uh, for there is salvation in no other name. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's another good exclusionary verse. There's a handful of them. So I'll have to think about Ask that again tonight. I want to give that to the question and answer group tonight, too. That's a wonderful question. <clears throat> and since I have a heads up, I've got six hours now, seven hours to come up with a few more verses. I'm going to look real smart tonight when I answer that question. All right, anything else? Let's give this to him then. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We thank you, Father, that we can live the revealed word of God. You didn't just, you didn't just, uh, we're not, we're not rats running through a little maze trying to find the cheese, Father. We're not, we're not trying, uh, different doors and, and getting zapped when we try the wrong one. Um, Father, you've given us your word. You've laid out very clearly what pleases you and what does not please you. You have manifest the absolute standard of your righteousness and we can live our lives accordingly or we can defy your word and face those consequences. But we are accountable for what you've revealed and we know your truth. So, Father, I thank you that we have the privilege to assemble together this morning and study your truth. I pray that we will be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man with not only an increased knowledge, because, Father, knowledge puffeth up, but give us also the the love and the grace to to truly edify and to truly transform us in in our thinking. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.